Welcome everyone to the Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talks. My name is Finn Jorgensen. I'm Dolly Jorgensen. Uh, and today we have a somewhat special uh, event actually because not only have we moved outside for the first time this season, uh, but it's also the beginning of our third year with Book Talks. Um, we started these in uh, on 23rd of March 2020 when we had a talk with David Farrier on his book Footprints. Uh, and since then, this is number, what did you count it? 78, I think, somewhere around there. So there's been a lot of book talks uh, and we've enjoyed it a lot. Uh, and we're also very grateful for all the people uh, who have come to, to all these talks. So today then uh, we have with us Bart Elmore, uh, who's going to talk about his book, uh, Seed Money, Monsanto's Past uh, and Our Food Future. that came out with W.W. Uh, Norton in 2021. Bart's an associate professor at Ohio State University. So we'll just give it over to you, Bart. Awesome. Wow. What a pleasure to be with everybody this morning and uh, or afternoon, wherever everyone, everyone is. Um, we have, um, I just got back from the uh, ASCH conference, the American Society for Environmental History conference and got to see everybody there. And what a pleasure that was. I mean, um, just, just having the opportunity to kind of connect with folks and um, that I will say the society is, is doing well, you know, it just felt like we're back uh, to some degree after all the chaos of the last two years. So anyway, another great opportunity to connect with friends, uh, Dolly and Finn Arn and, and, and to be here at the greenhouse. Thanks so much for having me. I thought for, uh, you know, just a couple of minutes, I'd talk about the book uh, Seed Money and think about um, just the basics. I wanted to be helpful. You know, I'm thinking of all the smart people in the room and all of us, you know, a lot of us have written about food or other things. And, um, maybe just riff on some of the, the tricks of the trade or things that I developed as I wrote this book that um, I kind of picked up along the way. And I'll start with the origin story of kind of how this came to be, um, because some of you I think know, but others might not. So um, this really started when I was a graduate student at the University of Virginia. I was working with Ed Russell, who I should say introduced me to the field of environmental history. I don't know about everyone else, but I didn't even know it really existed. Um, and I was interested in environmental issues, but I really loved history. And the thought of being able to fuse these two things was just, was awesome. I thought, this is what I want to do. And um, at the time, I'd been working with Ed Ayers, who was a Southern historian and was writing a dissertation on public school teachers in the American South. So I really had to pivot pretty dramatically. And started trying to think about a, a, a Southern company that had a big impact on the environment that I could write about. And I decided to, to write about Coca-Cola um, because it started in my hometown of Atlanta, Georgia. And I ended up uh, writing this history of Coca-Cola, which was uh, really exciting. It, it looked at each ingredient that goes into Coke and thinks about the environmental footprint of extracting all those resources from around the world. And it was in writing the chapter on caffeine that I ended up really getting connected to Monsanto because I was, I was trying to figure out how Coca-Cola got their caffeine, which you would think is Googleable, but at the time, it was completely obfuscated that supply network. I couldn't figure it out, and uh, a little digging though. After a while, I figured out that it was Monsanto that this chemical company started in 1901 in St. Louis, Missouri 
that we'd later know as the kind of largest genetically engineered seed seller by the end of the 20th century was this caffeine supplier for Coke. And that took me to St. Louis. I was on a very tight budget at the time. Uh, UVA's graduate stipends were quite small and just trying to trying to get by. So I flew on a budget to St. Louis. But when I got there, um, I got to the archives in Washington University in St. Louis, where Monsanto's records are housed. And you have to get permission from the company. At that time, it was Monsanto. Now it would be Bayer, which bought Monsanto in 2018, um, to use the records. And with Coca-Cola, I had been blocked from using their corporate archives. Um, they, I had reached out, I think as a novice environmental historian, if there's any graduate students out there, don't do this. I mean, I think I said something like, uh, I want to find the secret ingredients in your, you know, in your, in your beverage and, and that kind of thing. And they were like, no, you're never going to have access to our archives. I don't think no matter what I would have said, Coke would have given me access. Um, but I certainly didn't help my cause by being a little bit too honest, I think. Um, so I was ready to get turned down by Monsanto, but uh, strangely, it was it was quite easy. I said, this is what I'm interested in. I want to write a history of Monsanto from, uh, and I'm looking specifically at this caffeine. Uh, actually, I should say that at the beginning, it was, it was not a history of Monsanto. It was just, I want to look at this one ingredient and think about this connection with Coca-Cola. And so they, they gave me access, which was really pretty remarkable at the time. I thought, this is, this is really cool. And that was the beginning. I want to say this was maybe in my fifth year or fourth year of graduate school. And that was when I put a pin in it to write this book. I said, when I finish the Coke book, I want to come back because I have this access to these corporate records in St. Louis. And so I went to Alabama, my first job at the University of Alabama, finished the Coke book, and then immediately started, went back to St. Louis and started this, this um, Monsanto book. So no surprise to historians, but when I talk to journalists, they're always stunned that it's like, you know, it's almost a decade now of working on this stuff. You know, I was a, a fellow at um, New America, which I should say, I'm trying to be as helpful to everybody. I'm going to put some things in the chat um, just as it might be useful. Um, the New America Foundation helped fund some of this work. And I, I found it, uh, this fellowship, via some friends that were journalists. Um, it's a think tank in Washington, D.C., and, and they're really great in terms of their funding because they don't require budgets. They're not funding specific research assignments or projects. They're funding you. They, they, they look at your whole career and they think, okay, uh, we'd like to just provide support for you as you do various things. You don't need to report back on how you're using the money, things like that. And it was a huge boost to this project because it allowed me to go to various places, to Vietnam and Brazil in, in ways that I think would have been limited given humanities funding, you know, as we all know, which has been suffering over the years. So um, for folks that are writing, you know, these books that I think could affect policy or shape things, I realize this is also new America, so it's in some ways focused on uh, American issues, but it's not necessarily. These are global issues. Folks in there were writing about the conflict in Syria. Um, a lot of these people were, were writing for the Washington Post, uh, were, were, were staff writers for the New Yorker. Um, Patrick Radden Keefe was in my class with me, Nicole Hannah-Jones. I mean, it was, a really, it was really an amazing experience to be with all these journalists and to spend time with them. And um, I, I think what, what ended up happening is that experience really taught me that 
even though I had access to these corporate records in this archive, the reality was um, I was going to have those records very fast because as cool as it sounded to have all those records, as, as you might have guessed, they were sanitized. They were pretty, you know, they'd been cleaned through by the lawyers. Now, there was a lot of stuff in those records that were still pretty juicy. And, you know, it's amazing what these lawyers miss. And what you can use in those corporate archives to tri triangulate to these bigger stories. Um, and so I, I still think it was critical. I wouldn't have been able to write this book had I not had I not had the access to that. Um, but 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 it was really, uh, you know, getting outside of it, using some of these journalistic techniques that I was learning through New America, including like how to protect sources through encrypted phone services and, and, and strategies to talk to various whistleblowers that really, I think, filled out much of this book beyond the rec corporate records. But I will say, going back to those eight years, I kept telling them, you know, when is this, when's the book coming out? I'm like, it just takes us longer. You know, we've got to sit through all these boxes and actually like digest it. It's not going to be a two or three year thing. So they're, they're, they're stunned that it's actually out now. I think they thought it would never arrive. Um, but I think those strategies were really helpful. And so I don't want to go on and on. Let me just say a couple things about that, um, like what I kind of got into. So I wrote this whole history. You know, it starts in 1901. A lot of that early stuff is based on those deep archival records. Um, and, I, and I'm looking at this history of how this firm went from making, you know, saccharin for Coca-Cola, an artificial sweetener, and caffeine for Coca-Cola, which is basically all they made at the beginning. In fact, without Coke's contracts, they wouldn't have survived. I mean, those contracts were so critical to their profitability in the early years that uh, they were waiting on Coke's payments for pay to pay their workers. I mean, that's how significant that relationship was. To this period, of course, in the late 20th century, where they're selling seeds, Roundup, and all of this. And that's what the book does. It traces that history and kind of thinks about how we got here. That's in some ways why it's called seed money. You know, how did they get the seed money that allowed them to be the seed empire later in, in, in the history of the book? Um, but, but by the end, I will say I ended up in trials. You know, I ended up actually journeying to various courthouses across the country. Um, I sat in, for example, on a trial related to dicamba, you know, an herbicide that in the United States is, is facing a lot of backlash right now. It emerged really as a problem around 2015, 2016, because it was being used by farmers to try and kill weeds that had developed resistance to Roundup in the United States. And of course, this is all connected to the history, you know, Roundup Ready crops were first commercialized in the United States in 1996. The use of those Roundup Ready crops led to the rise of Roundup use, which led to these weeds developing resistance to Roundup. All this is familiar to folks who study ag history, but just for, for, for being, uh, you know, I always pretend no knowledge. Um, so that happened. And, and as a result, Monsanto started selling these new seeds that could tolerate not only glyphosate, but heavy spraying of other chemicals. And one of them was this chemical dicamba. I was tipped off to this problem with dicamba. I, I was looking at Roundup, of course, because that was all in the headline news. And I was, I was researching as much as I could on glyphosate and Roundup. But I was speaking with a lot of the weed scientists here at Ohio State, which I should mention, I'm here at Ohio State, one of these big ag schools. 
and having access to these tremendous ag scientists here who were able to kind of tip me off to various things as it was unfolding um, was really helpful. And they were saying, Bart, you're talking about glyphosate, but really you should also be looking at dicamba. Uh, and the problem, of course, was, again, this might be familiar to many of you, but dicamba is volatile. When you spray it on crops in the growing season in hot temperatures, it has a tendency to vaporize. Um, much more so than say something like Roundup or glyphosate. So in places like Arkansas, Missouri, where I've traveled and, and, and even in Ohio and other places, this dicamba can drift off target. And so if you're a farmer next door to a farmer who's using dicamba at such high volume because you have dicamba tolerant crops, you could get hit as farmers say, you know, I'm getting, I'm getting hit by this dicamba drift and so I'm getting calls from farmers as I'm writing this, you know, and even afterwards that are saying, look, you know, uh, I'm an organic soybean farmer. I don't have dicamba tolerant soybeans and I'm getting destroyed by this dicamba drift. Um, and so, you know, this massive court case uh, takes place in 2020 and I actually end up flying to go see it because it was unclear whether the documents in that case would be unsealed or not and whether people were going to be able to see these documents. And the only way I was going to see him is if I went to the court case and listened to the testimony, um, potentially. Interestingly, a lot of those exhibits were ultimately released, but uh, I didn't know at the time they were, were going to be released. So um, I was sitting in the trial, and sure enough, you see these documents being released. I'll end with the story. Um, internally, where, where Monsanto is saying in 2013, that they knew drift was going to happen with dicamba being sprayed in the growing season as it was going to be sprayed. And they even coached their sales personnel that, quote, you can help sell dicamba tolerant seeds by pitching, quote, protection from your neighbor. That is, you know, you, you, you will have to buy these seeds because you're going to have to protect yourself, farmer, from this drift. And so it was just this damning moment. My jaw dropped as I'm sitting there with a student of mine who had actually traveled because we were having to transcribe everything that was happening because we couldn't bring in recorders. And, uh, you know, that's where the, the writing really ended. So for me, I just wanted to pitch all that to show you kind of all the different strategies I tried to deploy. I mean, even getting on the ground to try and get some of these stories that were happening right in front of my face. Um, and I never really was trained in this stuff as a historian to go and sit in the gallery to watch a court case unfold and to see the historic documents that were coming out, to think about how you do that gracefully. Um, but I think it really uh, benefited the book in, in many ways to, to have that connection to New America, to think about how we could take some of the tools of journalism um, while also maintaining, and I think this is important, I, I don't wanna be a journalist. I actually really enjoy being a historian and, and the deep archival research we do, but maybe blending a little bit of those two techniques to come at this story. So um, there's so much more to say, but I, I know what uh, I, I think this is all about is a discussion and conversation. So um, I'll leave it there. But again, thank you all for being here. And uh, I look forward to, to chatting a little bit more about all this. And one more thing I'll say, I actually wanna lean on everybody in the room. Um, Bayer has reached out since the book has come out. And at first, I was very nervous because I didn't know what the intentions of Bayer were. I should say, for you, I say Bayer here in the US, but Bayer, of course, in Europe. 
um, Bayer has said that they would like for me to talk to the board of management and to think about what that would look like. And at the ASCH conference, I leaned on all of our friends to help think through that. What would a conversation look like if, if you, and I mean this, I mean, for the folks here, I'm looking at all the names here, you know, who, who could be helpful. What does one do as a historian in that space? Is that something one does? You know, do you go into the boardroom and say that? Do you let your book stand as your testimony to what should be done? Um, and what is the line between going into the boardroom and not? Um, I'm just curious to hear people's thoughts because I, I didn't anticipate being in that position. And now I kind of have to think through what the next steps are. So I'll leave it there. And, and thanks again for for coming out this morning and afternoon. Thanks a lot, Bart. That was actually really great to hear about your process and about these um, ways in which you've picked up on journalist kind of uh, ways of gathering evidence. Um, I thought though I'd ask, does that also affect the way that you write the story? Um, so yeah, going to a courtroom may not be something normally a historian does. And so you did it like a journalist does, but, but do you write, do you think differently now than you would have, or, or that you see there's a difference in your writing versus many environmental historians? It's a great question, Dolly. I think, you know, for me, it was really more about, um, Norton um, coaching me on writing b before I started doing that stuff. I don't think the, 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 the ways that I went about investigating this story affected the writing as much as the training Norton gave me in my first book, which I should note, I wrote for trade for my first book, which was a bit unusual. You know, it was a dissertation at the University of Virginia that got picked up by Norton. And the reason it did was because there was a former VP, vice president of Norton. I'm saying this again, for those who are thinking about, oh, I'd like for, for trade. How do you do that? How does it work? Um, I got lucky. You know, there was a, a vice president that was living in Charlottesville who came to the Miller Center where I was kind of associated and heard about the project. And uh, he was actually retiring from Norton. And so he he asked me, he said, would you like for me to dream, doctor, your your dissertation, like a chapter of it and show you what trade looks like? So give me a chapter and let me show you what that chapter would look like if it were a trade um, you know, worthy <laughs> chapter. Um, I think he also asked me, he said, how is your ego before he said that? And I, it's such a weird question. And I remember being asked that, but I think what he was saying, like, is I'm going to really tear this thing apart. And I want to make sure that you're not going to like crumble. <laughs> and I said, well, I think my ego is like normal. You know, I don't, I don't think I'll be fine. You know, I'd actually just like advice. And so that was the beginning, Dolly, of beginning to try and learn to write differently than maybe, you know, the standard academic monograph and having that dream mentoring was actually the big, I think more influential on how I wrote this time than, than before. And a lot of that, I just say, again, just to put a fine point on it was about like um, drama and, and character development. So being very, very attentive in, in the beginning stages of this book of who was going to tell my stories, who were the people that I wanted to follow. And, and the big thing with Norton is you always want to have someone that's 
that's at the beginning and the end that that you don't lose people along the way that you don't just have a name and then you see them for maybe a couple paragraphs and then they're gone if you think of any good novel it's like you want to see what happens to that person and how do they survive so there was a little bit of that side of it and also the drama so so instead of giving everything away in the topic sentences which i did in the dissertation um changing those topic sentences to things like and there was a problem period you know um okay well what is the problem like having the reader wanting to discover some of those things i'm still i'll be honest with you I'm still really trying to learn how to perfect that. I don't think I've still got it. I think it's going to take even more time to get there. But the last thing I'll say is we did as a team at Norton make a decision that I didn't want to be in the book. Um, and that was a deliberate decision. We were following Michael Lewis who's back on my shelf. He's a Norton author. Um, and what Lewis has done in some of his books really well is pick people that he, he's in the room but he's picking the bartender or somebody else to tell the story as opposed to him telling the story. And that was a little bit of Ed Ayer's influence on me as well. He would always say, I think to me that, you know, this is their story. This is not your story. And um, there's, I, I really appreciated that advice of kind of trying to figure out who could be the lens or the person that could tell their story here, as opposed to me being kind of, I'm in Vietnam, I'm in the jungle or whatever, you know, I kind of wanted to avoid that um, type of writing. Long answer, but I, I think it was less the investigative stuff and it was more Norton's training. I mean, this is really interesting to hear about. Um, and I think also the, you know, working with corporate archives and corporate stories in environmental history has been kind of a recurring theme the last couple of months, because I mean, we've had, I think, three mm. at least mm. deals with this. So, uh, anyway, the twist in yours is, of course, you got access to the archives. Uh, yeah. So. Yeah. Unlike uh, Greg, I guess, yeah. Greg Mittman, who was talking about Firestone's archives and not being given and then that the archive was like gone. Yeah. yeah. They, they carted it away, you know, so. And then I guess the double twist is they want to invite you back to talk about this. Uh, <laughs> no. So, so, I mean, it's fascinating. I'm sure we can return to that. But I, I think, you know, as part of that question, then some of that bigger context is, I think, in environmental history, uh, when working with corporate material, there's often a very clear strand of you know anti-capitalism or capitalism critical mm -hmm. um, approach then to to the writing um which i think I don't, I don't know i haven't read this book yet so i don't know mm -hmm. which you know approach you you went for there i mean yes critical mm -hmm. and there's you know some bad things there but could you uh say a little bit more about that i mean both i mean the coca-cola book i've read um, but this one also, how do you, I mean, how, how are we going to be critical to corporate, uh, actors in ways that allow for conversation, you know, yeah. ego question, what's their ego? Yeah. <laughs> what's their ego? Exactly. A couple of things I just, you mentioned Greg and of course, Greg Mitten and I just like when we were at the ACH conference, we, we caught each other and we both were like, we need to talk, uh, having just, you know, so you nailed it. Cause I, and I'd seen him on, on this as well. And, um, and we sat down for a very long conversation and for anyone who's interested in a much more extended version of this, we're going to try and have a panel 
um, at, at Boston together with maybe some other folks to just be like an, really an open Q&A, like what are some of the techniques? What are the downfalls? What are the pitfalls? I mean, he did have a very different experience with Firestone, which is somewhat kind of wild, I thought, compared with, I'm surprised that a company so litigious and so secretive as Monsanto seemed to be a little bit more open than Firestone. So, um, but yeah, so so stay tuned there um, for more. Um, the critical, yeah, I, I always joke that my students will come in with a Coca-Cola in class and then they'll learn that this is a book, you know, we'll read a little bit of Citizen Coke or something and they'll say, oh, and they'll put their Coke away. And, and or then they'll say, I don't drink Coke anymore or something like that. And then I kind of want to say, you're, I don't think you're getting it. You know, like this isn't really a story about Coke in some ways. And actually, Greg and I were kind of riffing on this at the, 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 the most recent conference that really what we why I think I like writing about these big multinational firms is precisely because it becomes about them to some degree, but about the larger systems they're embedded in. They're like a great lens. I mean, and it's the power of them. I think you think about something like a Coke or a Monsanto, they just, they're in so many different areas. That's what draws me to them. It really wasn't just the ag story that, that I was fascinated with, with Monsanto. It was like the plastic story or they, you know, they're the inventors of AstroTurf. Um, you know, they, they, they make uh, all sorts of different things in their history. Uh, PCBs, of course, poly, polychlorinated biphenols, which is the middle part of the book. I really enjoyed getting into that broader, basically the American economy and the global economy that emerges as a result of the creation of all these different products and thinking about how essential they became to the functioning of our economy and why, that's, why it's so problematic. And um, so, yeah, for me, I, it was it, it was a similar thing. You're great to invoke the Coke book, because for me, it was a similar objective. I didn't want this to just be a book about Monsanto. I wanted it to be a book that offered some areas of analysis and critique on the larger economic system in which they were embedded and to think about um, how. But by looking at these specific cases, can we find places of intervention perhaps, or moments where we can see where things went differently um, that could help us create a more sustainable economy in some ways. So, um, so it's definitely, a, it's definitely a, an objective of mine. I, I throw around the term, last thing I'll say in this book is this term scavenger capitalism, um, which one could argue constantly invoking capitalism just leads to this, uh, what is capitalism and these definitional discussions, which are, sometimes helpful, maybe sometimes not. Um, but in this case, what I was trying to talk about was just how dependent so much of our economy is on fossil fuels, just not beyond how we fuel our cars and how we fuel our power plants, but just looking at how this scavenger capitalist economy, as I call it, and I call it scavenger capitalism because what I started seeing was how these chemical companies we're scavenging on the waste piles of the booming oil industry. Like the, 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 the way that they were able to make these products and make them profitably was because they were basically taking the excess, all this waste of the oil industry and turning it into these things that we now use, whether it be the synthetic fibers in our clothes or, you know, you name it, it's all around us. And so I wanted there to be a discussion about that broader outside of Monsanto problem of this scavenger capitalism model in a time where we're trying to get off fossil fuels and we're in the time of climate change where we've got to adapt and get policymakers to think about 
yeah, okay, we need to figure out how we're going to not only power our cities and, and, and fuel our cars, but how are we going to make this? And how are we going to make this? Or, I mean, pretty much anything around me right now um, as well. So I hope it gets read that way and not just as an expose of Monsanto. Both Greg and I said that, that that's the biggest danger we feel with writing these books is it'll get described that way. And we always say, that's ah, not really what it is. You know, we want it to be a, a much bigger story. And I hope it gets uh, read that way. Yeah. And it seems to me that one of the stories um, that you're really talking about is how uh, these large multinational corporations control both supply and demand in essence, because yes. right. They, they created their own, demand in your example of of the dicamba resistant seeds so okay so spray dicamba or before spray roundup and oh by the way then you need the seeds that are resistant to that yeah exactly and and, and that relationship i think is what's particularly scary <laughs> yeah i in the book i describe it this way i say and it, we were kind of thinking as wordsmiths with my editor what, what's going on here you know and that's the fun part when you're getting to that stage of writing, you know, what's the big takeaways? And it was like, they're not a problem. They're not a problem solver. They're, they're pitching themselves as a problem solver. They're a problem seller. And, and, and I meant that, like, you know, that, that really what this business, if you look back at their history, is really good at is selling the problem. You know, they're really good at saying this is, you know, I was thinking about uh, Naomi's book, uh, 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 Merchants of Doubt and kind of selling doubt. It's not only selling doubt, but it's also like just being able to sell a problem well and be like, folks, you've got these Roundup resistant weeds. You've got to buy this dicamba tolerant seeds, which, of course, if the farmers are smart enough to see it now, they're like, wait a minute, you're selling us a solution to the problem you created. And that solution is going to create the same problem. I mean, we're seeing it right now with dicamba tolerant weeds. So now you've got to get I think of the iPhone again, you know, you got to get the iPhone 12.0 or whatever, you know, whatever it is, because um, you've got to have another stack trait. And so right now they're, but Bayer is pushing for a, uh, a stacked seed that has five different herbicide tolerances. So, you know, if you can just see it's a great business model and it goes back to seeing some of these larger systemic things. It's like, this makes sense if you're trying to make money, um, but it's not, it doesn't make sense if you're trying to help farmers. Um, so well, and, and that may be exactly the message that you would need to take to these this, this board of directors, which is, yeah, so that looks really good on the short term. You make money for yourself. But oh, by the way, you're destroying the planet and all of our futures. I mean, it, you know, I mean, as that as that is, that, that may be, in fact, you know, to, to point out, yeah, you, you guys have had a really successful business model of this. This is your problem selling business model and it's worked historically but do they run up against um that they've created too many problems or that they're selling themselves they're selling too many problems so do you reach some saturation point to which you can't solve the problems that you yourself have created um, i mean that might be one potential way to, to go i guess the way to wrap that might be in a you know about legacy right they have an impact uh, yes. on the planet 
and their legacy is not something that can be you know cleaned up by lawyers in the archives you know mm-hmm. history has its eyes on you right <laughs> and, can, and, yeah. and the, yeah that that legacy well and and to think okay so you've done really well at your shareholder value legacy um but are you doing well in other legacies and that perhaps those are something that this board may need to consider um at this point in time at our moment now um, and let's see, Gabriella, you have a you have a comment. So I'll give it over to you. I'm writing all this down, by the way. I, like friends, I appreciate all this because, like I said, I just want to have as much ideas as I go in the room. Um, I, I think that was great. So I had a couple of thoughts, and and the conversation has moved. But so I'll go back to to right now, piggyback on what Finana and Dalia are talking about um, about sort of the legacy, and so you know, my work on Heinz, right? One of the things he was very, very interested in was his legacy and his moral compass. And so if you want to go in, there are historical examples of corporations who put their moral compass first. And the and so you can sort of talk about moral compass, you can talk about the um, environmental legacy that you want for your children and grandchildren. So I think that there's, and I think this is a longer conversation we might do over Zoom, but but I think there are some real strategies of quite frankly, shaming and it's okay, but do it in a very um, equivocal way. The other thing that, that I wanted to sort of comment on, and I haven't read the book, but I can't wait to read the book and I saw some early work. So I'm super excited, but also about the, how do we, as someone who is currently being locked out of data that I really want on my project on Bordeaux um, of a quasi governmental agency of how do you get around that, right? So how, so even though we're locked out, you know, Greg wrote a fantastic book um, you know, there are the scientific and there are the ways in which the corporations also publish in places. And so using those things and, and, and uh, you know, exactly what you're saying right now, I'm trying to talk to um, viticulturalists and enologists who are working with climate change issues in Bordeaux and the US and Virginia and lots of places. And so that contemporary thing. Um, and I think that that's a way for, to encourage around about how you, you might not get into the archive or in my case, the archive stops at 1983 and I need it to go to 2020 or 2020, 2010-ish um, and figuring out how to navigate that and, and pinpoint, and for me, that's my frustration at the moment of, pinpointing the people to get the data because I know scientists have the data and sort mm-hmm. of it was that you know as historians who are trying to dig in who don't think all of this is awful and and terrible and we're not trying to necessarily shame the corporations but we're trying to understand and trying to provide a path forward by looking to the past that may have sometimes been worse and may have sometimes been better well, so I think one thing, Bart, maybe you could comment on that, which is this uh, exchange with scientists. So people outside of the corporation and how that maybe 
well, it certainly led you in different directions than you thought about, but how it might have filled in some of these kind of gaps or, you know, your lack of understanding of the situation, thinking about interdisciplinarity might be a, a way to go forward here. You nailed it. And Gabrielle, it's great to hear you and, and see you virtually. And, uh, and you nailed it, Dolly, with, when I was thinking about that, how, what, what, what was the most effective to get around what, what you're experiencing, Gabrielle? It was definitely, it was really embedding myself with weed scientists and scholars that, um, and I, I, I'm always careful because the problem with sources is you always have to make sure you're not revealing too much because some of these sources were very sensitive. But I don't think I am here by saying, I talked to scientists across the country. And because of this relationship between multinational firms and public institutions, which you could argue is one of the main arguments of the book, that there's, there should be a firmer firewall in some ways between the agencies that are regulating these companies and the companies themselves, but there's this kind of, as we all know, this revolving door. Um, everybody knows everybody, you know? And um, I would say some of my more interesting sources and sensitive sources without giving too much away came from people who knew people and in, 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 in that scientific world. And that's because again, the companies are the company are hiring companies hiring people that were studying in the same graduate schools or programs and things like that. And so, much like we as historians, we're kind of a tight knit group of people who know each other really well. You know, over the years, um, those connections really panned out. Now, then getting people to talk, whew, that's a tough one. You know, and like there was a lot of risk in the case of one one source that's that's in the book that in chapter twelve that starts off chapter twelve where you can see that the story is that this person did not talk, but that became the story in and of itself too. It was interesting to think about from the journalist, how do you lean into those things? Sometimes the story is the source that can't talk on the thing that you want to talk about, which is, you know, I, we teach, I know our grad students all this, but it was one of those things I had to remind myself, the silence is itself its own story. Um, but, uh, but I will say that, and you know, I know it's no magic bullet and it's not going to, it's not going to ease the frustration I know you're experiencing that we all face when we're trying to get at these tough stories. But that I'm just telling you for me over those eight years, that was one of the keys clearly to getting some of these sources that, and information that I would not otherwise have gotten. Um, including, I should say, you know, uh, somebody who is listed on the record in the book, a, uh, so I, I feel comfortable saying it, but the, the product manager for Roundup you know, who went on the record for the book, who was retired from the company, um, no way I would have gotten that source, you know, but for some interesting connections that led to that particular source. But the other ones too, I mean, even the more sensitive whistleblowers were a connection that, that you know, where that all happened. Um, and then also, I, I will say that it brings me back to something Finarn said earlier that I, I don't think I closed the loop on, which is, you know, like, um, uh, I guess something about how, how do you get them to, you know, why is it that they would reach out? And, and I do think it goes back to what you were saying, Gabrielle, about shaming and stuff like the, the, the person that reached out, um, I can now say openly, I mean, at, at first it was off the record. The person was calling me from the car, you know, it was like really weird. It was like, you know, the legal had not been cleared, all this stuff. But, um, and now 
um, it, it's uh, Matthias Berninger, and I'm probably butchering it, but German, uh, a German individual who was one of the youngest people elected to the Green Party, who's now the vice president of, of Bayer. And he joined the company because he believed, and you can, again, I, I'm happy for feedback too. Like, is this just BS or am I being naive? But he's saying, look, I joined this company because I believed I wanted, if I was going to make a difference in this stage of my life, these are the big entities that matter. And if I could do it from the inside, I could make a difference. And call me crazy, but we've had, you know, months of conversations now. And I think to your point, like, this is a person who's already on board with, like, my legacy matters. And, um, and I, and I want to do something good. And he answers directly to Warner Bauman, the CEO, and, and the power here is pretty profound to maybe affect change. So I, and I, but he told me clearly without going into things that we talked off the record about, I think it's safe to say that he said, the way that I wrote it, the tone, the avoiding modifiers of evil corporation and not trying to, you know, um, just letting the facts and kind of story play out worked. He said that the company like read it as we have to deal with this because this is not just another Frankenfood book that's calling us, you know, a bunch of evildoers. And um, and they told me that they have not reached out to other writers of these other books. And at first I thought, uh, maybe that makes me a bad writer. <laughs> I don't know if this is a good endorsement or a bad endorsement. Um, but I do think that that's what I wanted. I wanted it to come off as not a hit job on the firm and, and one that had a human story that tried to say, I get it. There's some good people in this company that want to do good. Um, and, and I think to your point, I want to talk to them. I want to see if they're willing to, to do something different. So, um, so I think, uh, sorry, that was kind of answering two different things, but I, but I'll, I'll end there. Cause for me, I think that tone thing was also really important. And I think it opened doors as I was trying to get interviews, you know, um, I was always trying to just talk to everybody and, 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 and hopefully, I think everyone, and I haven't received any email where someone says, you know, I, I was portrayed the wrong way or, you know, whatever. Most people say that, you know, you got it right. Um, so that made me feel good. Yeah. And I think, you know, that approach is also what, what makes you a good historian, this, this project then, um, that becomes the strength of the book. But one thing that really made me think of then this, uh, when you're describing the, the German politician from the Greens, then is, you know, we have this ongoing discourse in Norway now about the green transition, that we need to shift away from um, the, uh, you know, the oil economy and the dependence on oil in all things, um, which is a big thing economically for Norway as an oil producer, right? Uh, and then the role of these companies uh, is, I mean, is, is difficult because they, of course, they depend on the oil. They also have a lot of expertise. They know how to do a lot of things. Uh, and the way that narrative now is being pitched is that we need to work with the oil companies to support them in order to manage the green transition because we will depend on the expertise that they have which is of course a story that can be, I think, analyzed uh, in more depth. It's problematic. There's also some truth in it. So, so I think thinking very 
clearly about what that expertise is that Monsanto has and I mean how it is necessary for also other worlds, other legacies is I think uh, an important thing and I think that's also something we might want to do more here in Norway as we really start, I mean, as environmental historians uh, working with green transition issues. Yeah, and, and I think you're absolutely spot on. I, I think there's the potential, and that's why I think this conversation could be amazing, because there's actually, you know, they're, they're, they are so powerful that their interventions could be dramatic if they go in the right direction. Um, but I, I actually, I'm curious, like, Kind of pulling the audience to degree here. I've heard when I, I was giving a talk uh, recently where uh, a historian of um, modern Germany came up to me and said, Oh, Bart, this is classic German firm like behavior. Um, like post Holocaust, there has been this kind of uh, corporate strategy of saying, we know our history is bad and dark and ugly and um, we wanna do better. And he was suggesting to me that I might be not being, being fooled. I mean, he wasn't suggesting that it was that far, but that I needed to be careful that, the, um, that an American firm might behave very differently than a German firm, given the unique context. And of course, as a historian, I'm thinking, of course, I should have been thinking of that from the very beginning. But, but I wonder what people think about that. I mean, you're talking about Norway and different cultural contexts. And, and given the histories of these different places, I wonder if anyone had thoughts on, on, on that. In other words, um, are there unique and people may not, you know, this audience may not necessarily have, uh, you know, key insights on specifically German firms, but things I'd want to think about, about that context. Um, well, the thing that, that matters. yeah, the thing that immediately jumps to mind for me would be to uh, frame the conversation in terms of the EU green transition. Right. I mentioned, so the green, the green new deal um, kind of set up within Europe. So that, right. That is a, is a real thing that the EU is investing in big transitional monies, including within agriculture. So the Green Deal being a huge agricultural investment as well. Mm -hmm. um, so part of their reaching out may be uh, strategic on their part to take advantage of, not take advantage of you, but to, to, to make themselves align with this movement of a green new um, movement, you know, politically. So, so that, okay, well, there's economic wins to be had if we can change ourselves to go that way. And, and so maybe, um, you know, thinking about that context and, and helping them to see where they might fit in in such a green transition might actually, yeah, as you say, mobilize them to do good uh, with all this expertise and power that they have. Um, yeah. And they still get some money in the end, which is what they're actually uh, supposed to be doing. Um, but that might be one context that I would say. Um, I do wanna to get to Gerard had a question comment. So I wanna make sure he gets a chance to ask it. Hi, Bart. Yeah, calling me. Um, I think the last time I saw you was at ASCH and it was a session you did on capitalism. And I kind of have like a 
like big question which you can't answer, but um, I haven't read your book yet, but I've seen some of your other stuff. I, I guess I'm sort of wondering like what the relationship is right now between historians and corporations, because I think like with respect to global warming, we need corporations as much as we need governments to sort of change. And I hate corporations and I don't like capitalism, but I think like um, I was trained as a historian of technology and I'm not a business historian, but I was trained in like an economic business slash technology graduate program. And I was used to hearing people talk about business economics and corporate culture. And I, and I think um, I think corporations basically assume that like corporate histories are always positive. I think when I was at Chemical Heritage Foundation for a long time, I think they're often like confused when people write things that are negative. I think they just don't understand. Um, I, I think they see this as, 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 a, as a way of writing a positive biography of something. And I think sometimes they're confused. Um, but I think right now there's been a big turn against capitalism. It's, it's basically now trickled down to ASCH and in agriculture history. And I think we have to sort of try to figure out how we're going to deal with these people in the future. And I think that some corporations may deal better with economic historians and business historians because they sort of conceptualize things differently than we do. Um, but I think like we're going to need those people to fix the earth, even if they don't. Want. I mean, I, I think most corporate stockholders don't actually give a shit about the future of the planet. I think they're worried about how much money they're going to make this year. But I think we have to have some kind of relationship with them to make things work. And I'm not sure how to do that. And, mm -hmm. I, and I think um, the larger question about capitalism is interesting, but another word that keeps coming up, I think, is expertise. And I think right now in, the, in, in, the, in this current pandemic world, I think expertise is also something that's become more problematic for historians. Because I think right now, like everyone has an opinion about stuff online. So I think while your book is a very insightful analysis of what's going on, I think corporations are also confused now because everybody has an opinion about, say, what a PCB is, even if they don't even understand what those three letters standpoint, stand for. Yeah. So I think right now we're in a really interesting historical place where we really need multinationals to sort of help us or at least feign to help us in the future. But I'm not sure like how we can use their histories to help us help them make better decisions. Yeah. And, I, and I think that's, that's really, really hard to do. It's a, that's a great thing, Gerard. And, and, you know, just thinking about it, oh my gosh, um, a couple of things come to mind. I mean, What's weird to me, actually, is how historian versus journalist plays in the corporate world. And whether this is something people have experienced or not, I don't know, but I had definitely experienced this myself. Um, the best example of this is with the Coke story. The first time I experienced this was when the lobbying firm for the American Beverage Association let me into their basement on K Street in Washington, D.C., to see their lobbying documents related to the mandatory deposit laws and all that stuff in the, in the US when it came to recycling and all that. And it was like, I couldn't believe they let me in. And I, I reflected on it and I think historian versus journalist was different. Um, and, and I found that to be an angle, in other words, um, Right. I think we're in a, in a moment where we could teeter one way or the other. And I think that's what I'm trying to talk about with this conversation I'm having with Bear. I'm so it's weird. It's like I realized it after the book came out that I could have um, burned myself if I had done certain things that I think would have um, given a made it seem as if 
um, I was this enemy of the firm or something. I don't know. I mean, th that there's something really powerful about basing our arguments. Uh, this is almost obvious talking to all of us, but but I, I really had this moment where it's like, wow, this thing I do of taking facts from archives, writing it up and, and relying very closely, not deviating from those facts, you know, letting those documents be my guide is the thing that gives me, for lack of a better word, a certain kind of power in these conversations, you know? And um, and it, I have to say, like, I'm just being, I'm, I'm kind of uh, showing uh, my, my, my experience or, 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 or how it went down for me. Like, I, I think I kind of realized the power of that afterwards when Bear was reaching out and things like that and being like, ah, this is this thing I have that is easy to give up. If, for example, on glyphosate or Roundup, there's such a discussion about what does it do in the body? And there's some people who think it causes everything from this to that. And perhaps I could have gone out on a limb and said, okay, I've got these two studies that show this. I'm gonna say it does this. I avoided that because as a historian, I can't know that right now. And I think it was, the, it was that kind of training of you can't go there, Bart, because the history hasn't unfolded yet for you to say something definitive on it. Now you can present as I do, here's some studies that show this and this, and this is what we know right now. But, um, but I think trying to stay in that lane of here's what we can know was what was most valuable in opening the door, I think, to a multinational like buyer in this case. Um, because as Greg was saying, we sat down together and, and he said, I said, how was the legal review of your book with uh, the new press? And he said, it was fine. And he said, you know why? Because look at the footnotes. You know, everything was so backed up that they said, you know, if they came after you, you've got every, you know, you've got documentation to show where, why you're saying what you're saying. So um I, th those are just two anecdotes. I, I think there still is something to say when we go approach companies and we say we're a historian, that's different than a journalist. And I, I've experienced it, not just in that case with the lobbying firm, but multiple times where you could sense that they were like, okay, this is somebody whose craft is different. And that's not to slight journalists. I'm not trying to say that there's something inherently wrong with journalism, but I don't know. There's something unique that we have that uh, I hope we never give up. Um, and, and I think it is that the closeness with which we, we hem to our, to our, to our sources. Um, and, um, so I'll, let me just stop there. That was a great comment. And, um, I'm hoping Fred, that this is exactly what you're talking about. A chance where history can actually shape one of these massive business businesses that I do think, as you said, is so big that if it pivots, it's going to have a real-time effect. Um, but maybe I'm still just that naive person who doesn't realize how things really work. <laughs> so we need to wrap up, but I wanted to ask just a very brief question, a last one then, uh, which is, of course, the flip side of all this. Have you been criticized by historian colleagues for not being sufficiently critical to these corporate interests? No. <laughs> and that's the thing. I mean, that's the weird thing. It's somehow I threaded this needle. I mean, I'm waiting for after this. You know, somebody said, "No, I'm the person who really feels this way." But um, if you read this book, I mean, we're talking about workers whose face 
peel is peeled off five times because of a chemical herbicide they're making inside a factory. You know, it's graphic, it's it's dark, it's gross, it's 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 as disturbing as you think a book about Monsanto would probably be, given given Agent Orange and all these different things that were made by the company over time. Um, I don't shy away from that. And in fact, in the introduction, I say that I say you're going to see dark and unethical choices that were made. And I wanted to call those things out as unethical. I also don't think it's safe, you know, going back to George's point. I think, you know, it's not an uh, if you read some of Alfred Chandler's work, which I, I deeply admire in so many ways for different reasons. But a lot of those books about these corporations that don't think about the environmental effects or the labor experiences of, of people that were really harmed in the process of the, the development of these firms. Um, I don't think gets at the whole story. And, and so this has both. I mean, you're going to see both of those things, but I think it's enough, uh, again, based on the facts that a, comp a person like this VP who joins the company with good ethics can read it and say, I wanted to read this because now I see problems that I want to go see. And the last point on that is I have a feeling this particular person is going to want to go to some of these plants that he'd never been to, you know, because as one does, you join this massive firm, you, you don't know, you haven't been to all these little factories everywhere. And I think he wants to now go and see for himself what I wrote about, which, wow, could that be the moment where someone sees something that otherwise was just, you know, something they never would have acknowledged. So, um, so for now, I think um, I, I'm, I'm safe from, 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 from that. And, and, um, I have to say, I think it's a product of just great training. And I want to give a shout out to people like Greg, to people like Ed Russell, to, to all of us, to, to, to the community of environmental historians who I think have trained younger scholars like myself who are coming along later in the, you know, the, the evolution of the field to do this the right way. Um, I think people say how relevant is environmental history? I think it's as relevant as ever. And um, and I think it's a it's really because of the foundation that so many people have laid for us that have have helped helped us do history this way. And um, so I feel lucky to do it. I feel very lucky to be with you all today. And, and thanks really for doing this, Dolly and Fenor. And this is amazing. And, and that you've had so many different book talks is incredible. Um, keep doing it. It's really a great service to all of us. Thanks. Uh, yeah, and thanks also to you, Bart, for talking about your book, Seed Money. I particularly appreciated the attention you paid to the, I mean, the craft, the skills, the process also of, of how such a book came into being. So that was really good, really insightful. Uh, and thank you then to everyone in the audience as well. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>